0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at current movies in theaters and elsewhere and uh, takes a look at films from the past that may be tangentially connected to them. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer for Local Express
1: here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film blogger at Flaw on the Iris, which is at halifaxbloggers.ca. I'm also the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. And this week we're taking a look at the magic of the movie musical. <laughs> In the midst of a, I don't even know if you'd call it of a revival of, of movie musicals, but a, a fresh attention being paid to movie musicals. Certainly, with the announcement of La La Land getting 14 Oscar nominations, insane. It's crazy. I know. Uh, and and that's that movie is being adored by many, many people. Um, you know, and I got to say right from the outset that uh, I'm not a huge lover of movie musicals. I have liked a few of them and I'm going to, I'm happy to mention which ones I have liked over the years. Um, going back in time and fairly recently, there's actually two or three I'd like to talk about that opened in the last 12 months or so. Um, but uh, that I, those ones I really liked. I, But I will say that I am a big fan of films where music plays a prominent role, Um, films with a diegetic music, meaning music that, that, comes out of the actual narrative as opposed to necessarily um, uh, the kind of music where it feels like uh, a theatrical production has been filmed. <laughs> yes, where all of a sudden
0: those movies where, you know, they're in a nightclub or a theater and all of a sudden they've got a stage that's about
1: 10 miles wide <laughs> to perform on all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Sometimes that can be really charming. Like, you know, I've seen, I've seen movies where there are musical scenes in them. You know, if I off the top of my head, I'll suggest like Five Hundred Days of Summer has an amazing musical moment right in the in the middle of it where uh, where uh, they they dance to um, uh, a Oats song, which is terrific. <laughs> I love that, but I but I do find that that the sort of traditional Golden Age of Hollywood musical I find a little hard to take sometimes. Or, or the scene, the great scene in um, Magnolia where everyone starts singing. Sing along to Amy Mann. Amy Mann, yeah. Oh, that is a wonderful <laughs> scene. I love that. I'm mean, I dying, dying to get back to that film because I haven't seen it in quite a while. And Well, it takes some going because it's a long, intense yes. drama. You sort of have to gird yourself a little bit. But you're right. It's totally worth revisiting. So, but let's talk about La La Land since uh, it's on everybody's minds right now. Uh it's I'll, you know, I should say it's written and directed by Damien uh uh Chazelle, who uh is probably best known for, for Whiplash, which uh earned some Oscars uh, a couple of years ago and a film I really loved. Um now this is his follow-up. Uh it's I got to say, despite all the frothy acclaim, I don't think the film quite has the focus of his earlier film, and I didn't quite like it as much. But uh, how did you feel about it? I I enjoyed the film a fair
0: bit. I mean, I I am a fan of musicals, uh, both vintage and uh, a little more modern. Uh, You know, I I love any time that music creeps into the frame, as it were. And uh, I I thought this was, was a, you know, a fresh attempt, even though kind of every moment in the film has been kind of cut and pasted out of uh previous musicals in one way or another um but you know i i like that kind of uh mash approach to the the movie musical um you know this is not a film without flaws i i was a little taken aback by its uh it's a uh, almost sweep of the nominations at the oscars um you know especially in comparison to some other films that uh, came out over the past year but um you know, you know,
1: never, never underestimate Hollywood's love for
0: a movie about Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. I
1: think you know that the, the,
0: it's it's like the artist
1: yeah, all over or again. Argo, or <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's kind of ridiculous how many movies that has have Hollywood, some aspect of Hollywood in them, uh, getting a lot of acclaim this time of year. It does tend to suggest that that those those Academy voters are are fairly, uh, you know inward and self-looking, <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: For for sure, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish maybe it had taken more chances with the story that it had some more, maybe some of the dramatic intensity of, of Whiplash, and I, I know I, I probably ticked off some people who are sitting around me when, uh, you know, J.K. Simmons shows up for, for a couple of scenes as the uh, as you know, the stern club owner, and you know, I had the, I, when he was uh, staring at uh, Ryan Gosling uh, playing, you know, going off on his jazz tangent while playing Christmas carols, and then I started going, "Not my tempo, not my <laughs> tempo." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, I don't think anybody. Tempting, yeah. yeah, I don't think anybody in the theater got that particular joke. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like I say, it's not a perfect film no. by any stretch. The, the the story is is fairly rote. The characters are fairly thin. Um, and and uh, Ryan Gosling and Amy uh, Emma Stone kind of coast on their charm, <laughs> to, yeah, a, to and, a great extent. And, but, and they have a lot of it. But they have they do have a lot of it. And I can <laughs>
1: yeah. I can forgive Emma Stone just about anything. So. Pretty much. I I figure that that people who have seen Crazy Stupid Love or Gangster Squad are going to know that these two actors have a lot of chemistry together. It's great to see them together. And I liked I'll say I liked a lot of the dance numbers. Some of the songs are a little forgettable. The two that have been nominated for best song are lovely. Uh, The one that everyone is whistling when they leave the cinema uh, City of Stars is pretty amazing. I I really like that song. And I like how much the look of the film. Like it has a wonderful eye-popping technicolor look about it that, uh, that really does make Los Angeles seem like a wonderful place to be all the time. Uh, it, it, we're not talking, um, you know, Nightcrawler here. No, this is no. not a, This is not uh, showing us the seedy underbelly of this city. This is showing the the wonderful dreamlike qualities of the film. I, I guess that um, the problems that I had with it, uh, it was just – the structure is this sort of like uh, they jump in time through the seasons and uh, and so we get this relationship between these two characters building and suddenly jumping forward and and the, I think the film in terms of its story and the script takes a expects a lot from this structure to to sort of Connect the dots in terms of their relationship. There are times when when uh, Sebastian, the uh, jazz pianist that uh, Ryan Gosling plays, is uh, he, he just becomes a total jerk in a way that I don't think is really. It, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily foreshadow much of that. Like we we he behaves in a way that I don't think the film justifies or necessarily explains. Mm. And uh, you know uh, and her character. Is is pretty much perfect, uh, you know. And then they they suggest other 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 characters come into the into the game. Rosemary DeWitt, who is an amazing actor, she's criminally under eyes. Oh my gosh, she's yes. barely in it. Uh, and then you've got John Legend, who actually has one memorable speech, a great one, where he promises he's sort of an exploration into creativity, uh, Sebastian's creativity, and he sort of challenges him. But uh, we don't really, I don't get the sense that that is fulfilled. Um, no. So. You know, and I understand a lot of musicals have this sort of impressionistic take wherein the songs and the emotion that is carried within the songs carries a lot of the weight of the film. So I don't know if we can hold La La Land to the kind of standard that we would a traditional drama that didn't have that that these musical interludes. Um, at the same time, I, I just felt like the, the script and the, the the plot was a little thin to carry the kind of emotion that I think – the film expects us to have at the end. I, there's there's a little bit of a tragedy here. There's a lot of melancholy, and I was like, meh. All right, so you know what? It <laughs> was. It, it kind of. It, it didn't work out in one way, but it sure worked out in another way. <laughs> you know. So there's a little bit of that melancholy. Yes. Uh, and now that I've seen the Umbrellas of Cherbourg um or the parapluie de Schurberg, excuse my pronunciation and my my first pronunciation i really see how much that chazelle borrowed in terms oh, of theme yes, and and, and content from that film and i liked the 1964 film a lot more than la la land but but uh but yeah I, I in some way i guess i think i was a little bit set up for la la land because the buzz coming in was so positive so i went in my expectations pretty high not only because i loved A whiplash, and then to have it be kind of meh, um, I just was a little underwhelmed. And
0: that's probably an appropriate response. You know, it does sort of uh, buy into the concept that that uh, oh yeah, musicals had uh, really thin storylines because uh they had the songs to really kind of push them over the top which is not the case at all like if you look at singing in the rain that's got a really w- i mean it's got these amazing musical numbers but the 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 whole construction of the story and the the dawn of sound and and the star who can't uh can't speak into a microphone you know there's there's a really layered story going on there you know with the historical aspect and and it uh, you know certainly a more uh in uh, incisive look at Hollywood than we get from La La Land. Um, you know, so certainly uh, Umbrellas of Shoreborg has
1: a, has a great storyline. In that case, there is no dialogue per se. Everything is sung in that film. Yeah, um, I actually learned a term in my research that I hadn't heard before called recitative, which means it's a, it's something that came out of the theater. And it basically means that uh, all the dialogue is, is sung, even the sort of The casual, Mm. uh, you know, the stuff that you wouldn't expect to be put to song is put to song, and uh, and yeah, and it's it's remarkable that how well they do it. Even I mean, like I, you might have guessed, my French is not terrific, Uh, but uh, but I reading the subtitles and then understanding some my high school uh, uh, pronunciation and understanding some French, you know, some vocabulary. uh, I was amazed at how how charming and how well it worked. Uh, in in the Umbrellas of Sherberg, um, which which is a movie I would absolutely recommend to anybody. It's on iTunes, and uh, and it's it's so delightful about a young couple deeply in love. She's sixteen, he's twenty. Um, he's she's Catherine Deneuve as, <laughs> as in her in her youth, which never hurts. No, nope. <laughs> uh, he's a Nino Castelnuovo, and uh, you know a. a brooding young man. And and uh, they fall in love in this small town. Her mother runs an umbrella shop, which isn't doing very well. And uh, she's against the fact that this young couple want to get married but uh, fate steps in. He's sent away. He's drafted, and he's sent away to war in Algeria. And uh, and so she basically, and she gets pregnant. And she is pregnant after he leaves. And so she has to make some decisions about her future. And it's actually fairly progressive, I think, for 1964. Oh, I, I can't imagine time. a movie like this being as forgiving uh, of its female character as this movie is in Hollywood at the time. Like, there's there's no possible way that, that it would have been as accepting as this. So, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's love. And, and the scenery is gorgeous, and it's so color coordinated. The primary colors—blue, yellow, and red—are just popping in every shot. Uh, it's incredible the way it looks.
0: Yeah, I saw this. Uh, I saw this on the big screen from a film print uh, in the '90s. Uh, Martin Scorsese had a, had a string of uh, major sort of film restorations and reissues that he was kind of pushing and sponsoring when there was still a rep cinema circuit that would uh, you know that was there to. to you know, take it and release it and take it out of the country. And, um, and, uh, you know, so the, it did play at Wormwood's uh, Dog and Monkey Cinema here in Halifax. And to see that on a, on a big screen in 35 millimeter was just amazing. Purple Noon, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, film, uh, was another one in that series. Uh, you know, another one, an amazing restoration. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, to see, to see this, uh, Umbrellas of uh, Cherbourg on a big screen and, those the primary colors as you mentioned, like I just thought so much lead paint <laughs> went into this film. Yeah. It's like, do not lick the screen. You will no. get lead poisoning. Yeah,
1: it's intense. It's it's wonderful though. And and it's each character has sort of a theme color. And of course the moods, that the moods change, the colors change. There's that incredible shot where he leaves to go to war, uh, or to go to the military, and she's on left on the platform and the camera looks back at her. going along with the train but the train speeds up and eventually the camera just slows down and stops leaving her as this little dot at the end of the platform it's incredible it's worth it for just that shot Um, and I also didn't realize that it uh, one of the songs was very familiar to me the main theme I'll wait for you which uh, is a song I was familiar with I don't know whose version but I had Mm. no idea it was so much a part of this film and uh, it was great to hear it uh, performed and sung again Uh, now uh, now
0: I'm curious to know who did it Uh, Michelle Legrand I believe did, did the songs yes
1: Yes, but, uh, but it's, yeah, it's been covered a, a ton of times by by different artists uh, over the years, including Tony Bennett. So, uh, and I guess uh, English lyrics were written for it. But oh, uh, but yeah, I would say that uh, in terms of the look of the film, like it, <laughs> other than maybe Dick Tracy, I cannot think of another <laughs> movie that uses primary colors as much as that. It's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I've got the, uh, there's a Criterion Blu-ray of it That's um, part of the sort of a Jacques Demy collection that they put out. And uh, there's a sequel, Young Girls of Rochefort. Okay. Um, which uh, I'm not familiar with, but uh, it's in that set. So, Right. One of those next rainy days. Where <laughs> yeah, you can, sure. Can actually knuckle down and, sure. and get through a bunch of things in my to-watch Um And, uh, well, it'd be a good day to revisit
1: Umbrellas of Sherbrooke as well. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. on a rainy day. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is really. It's got that kind of vibe to it. Uh, I'm really glad I saw it. And I, and although I, you know, I'm a little harsh on La La Land uh, uh, than more most people. I think it's probably more a reaction to that buzz, right? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I can't understand how it could have gotten all that attention uh, at the Oscars. And I'm sure it's going to win many of those 14 nominations. Uh, and it's fine. It's fine. It's just not. It's not mind blowing. Uh, and I. Can't quite get my head around that. Well, yeah, I, I just go back.
0: You, you know, I enjoyed the film more than you did, but I also didn't think it was like the best thing of all time either. Uh, so I, I chalk it up to the artist effect. You know, that, yeah. that kind of, you know, if you can do nostalgia in kind of a slightly fresh way, then, <laughs> then everybody will just kind of get keeled over. And, you know, and, you know, because the dancing is okay, it's not fantastic, and the singing is kind of okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and John Legend kind of, you know, when he comes on screen and does his big song, and you're kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> there's, there's a performer. Yeah, totally. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and Ryan Gosling's character is is, is like the, the the difficult musician kind of archetype, which I think uh, is owes a serious debt to um, Martin Scorsese's New York, New York, where right, yes. Robert De Niro plays a difficult musician. Yes, yes. Um, and it's a similar kind of star-crossed lovers kind of kind of storyline um, and I, I think that was kind of lurking in the back of the screenwriter's heads as well and, and you know and that film in turn is kind of uh, inspired by A Star Is Born um, primarily the Judy Garland um, uh, ugh, Mason. <laughs> James Mason James Mason version yeah, directed yeah, sure. by George sure. Cooker. sure um, yeah I only looked at it like a couple hours ago uh um, <laughs> <laughs> jet lag folks this is what will do to you. <laughs> um and uh yes yeah, so, so you know it's like it's like an echo of an echo of an echo almost in that, in that regard and, mm-hmm. and and maybe they should have uh, uh Chazelle and company should have come up with some ways to maybe steer him in some some different
1: directions i mean he's not a complete jerk like, no, like he's de niro not. is but he's, he's not but he he is uh i i felt like some of his his change of directions in terms of his his anger and frustration wasn't quite not justified or just understood or explained in yes. terms of his character motivation like he goes he chooses to go with this band and when he when uh, Emma Stone's character challenges him he gets really defensive with her in a way that I, I don't really know if we quite get uh, maybe we do by the end of the film but we certainly don't at that point so <laughs> anyway um uh, but yeah so so it though i really like the fact that uh la la land uh inspired me to go and watch the umbrellas of Sherberger, i i suspect that maybe deep inside i do have a musical fan uh, a fan of musicals in me uh, but i'm i'm uh, looking forward to hearing maybe some that uh, from the the uh the history of of, of <laughs> hollywood musicals that you might uh, recommend there Stephen. Well, uh, you know, it's 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 funny how the, the musical
0: kind of came about as as uh almost a way to save the film business <laughs> because uh it, you know, all of a sudden uh sound came in in the late 20s uh you know, primarily with the jazz singer uh and Al Jolson which was kind of a silent movie with musical numbers, you know, inserted. Um and then uh so so you know, doing these kind of Broadway review-style shows uh, on film became all the rage. They're horribly stiff and and uh, and and kind of awkwardly staged and filmed, and uh, and they were flopping. Every studio did them: Paramount on Parade, uh, Your Show of Shows. Um, you know. Uh, Follies of 1929, all these kind of... Well, I just made that title up, actually. Uh, <laughs> there, there,
1: there's a... Um, you need to fly to Australia more often, I, dude. Think, I think so. That's awesome. I love it. I think... <laughs> just you make would, up... It's an alternative title. You could totally sell me on this, because I don't know anything about <laughs> these
0: movies. Um, there's a favorite of mine called Golden Dawn uh, from the late 20s, early 30s, and it, it's set in some... Colonial backwater, where there's like a slave master who sings a love song to his whip. Uh, and <laughs> Noah Beery Sr., I think, plays this character. Who's I, just...
1: I, you're making all this up. This no, no, this is actually all. true.
0: This is actually true. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Believe, I don't know if I believe you.
0: Google Golden Dawn, it's <laughs> okay. Google, Golden yeah. Dawn is easily one of the worst musical musicals of all time. Mm. And 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 uh, you know, the, the success of the jazz singer kind of prompted all the studios to kind of crank out some of these things, and they started flopping pretty quickly <laughs> because there was, you know they really didn't know how to make these things they had one fluke success because of al jolson who was the biggest star in the world at the time um but the, these kind of review shows and everything you know with every star on the on the lot kind of doing a musical number um you know grew pretty tiresome just because they they're not that engaging visually and and the novelty factor wore off pretty quick and then uh and then, so they, they've swore off musicals for a while, for a few years at least, and then Warner Brothers uh, came out with 42nd Street, um, which wasn't based on an old property and wasn't uh, just a collection of songs sort of linked together by an MC. I mean, these films actually had, like Jack Benny would come out and, and do those little linking things between musical numbers. That's how creaky it was. Um, but 42nd Street had an actual story. It was set in a theater. It's about the production of a big play on Broadway. Um, you know, the big star... Uh <laughs> played by um uh oh BB oh no I've forgotten her name again, but uh, she's uh, the big star, you know, has an accident, breaks her leg and that young ingenue, good old uh Halifax born uh Ruby Keeler has to go out there and become a star. And that, you know, which became the cliche, you know, that became the cliched story, but that's where it began in 42nd Street. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Ruby Keeler was one of the biggest stars in the world for a few minutes um, before retiring from the screen after... B.B. Daniels. B.B. Daniels. I was there so close. <laughs> um, who, was an, who, you know, who was an amazing comedian from the silent days. Um, her silent films are, are are amazing. And she was a v- very funny and very... Uh, very, uh, with it kind of uh, woman, uh, for the, for the time, um, kind of overshadowed by Louise Brooks and, and, um, you know, Greta Garbo and all that kind of thing. But, but she was actually funny, um, as well as, uh, as a good, uh, good actor, um, and didn't do a whole lot in talkies. Uh, she moved to England with her husband and became a radio star over there, but, but, uh, 42nd Street, she gets to play the ingenue or the, the star Ruby Keeler is the ingenue who steals everyone's hearts and Warner Baxter is the, the director who pushes himself into a heart attack. Is, is, are we
1: talking like the early forties or late? This is
0: uh, this is like still the early thirties. Early thirties, okay. So, 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 basically, but after the first round of these kind of stodgy, stagey, you know, review style musicals and, and weird adaptations of really dated theatrical properties, um, you know, eventually somebody figured out. It's like no, we've got to create original stories, and and you know, and of course they still would adapt things, but um, but for the most part, you know, they had to. Re-des- recreate the musical uh for the big screen and you know a lot of that was in terms of story and character and use of songs and all that sort of thing um you know and and over time you know the the M- mgm kind of by the 40s was becoming the sort of the uh the nape ultra of the movie musical the 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 um the combination of uh their song department and their produ- production producers like alan freed or alan freed um Ellen Freed was the DJ who invented rock and roll, but the the um the the producers that specialized in musicals and had a unit that you know were specially um put together to to make pull off these um pull off these productions, uh just uh, you know it's an assembly line approach, but but they had such a high quality in terms of story and, and the casts they had to draw from, and every department was kind of working. Uh, on its A-game. So you get those Judy Garland musicals, the Gene Kelly musicals. Um, you know, you, you get some of those later Fred Astaire musicals that are just these eye-popping spectacles. And uh, they, they raised the bar uh, to the point where, you know, like these big productions um, that people expected, by the 50s, the studios were starting to lose money. They're starting to cut back on the budgets. And that's kind of what kind of slowly um, brought the movie musical to a halt. Um, as it were until uh, the 60s you get uh, The Sound of Music is a big hit for sure after you know 20th Century Fox has a string of of hits with these uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein films Mm -hmm. you know South Pacific and um, Oklahoma Carousel uh, all taken from big stage musicals and then uh, The Sound of Music is is kind of the biggest hit of them all you know it just becomes this worldwide smash and um, and so then everybody's all the studios are trying to recreate the success of sound of music and, and they almost bankrupt themselves in the process i mean you, you know you, you had sound of music and mary poppins both starring um um Ju- julie andrews uh and then you get these kind of just dire over the top big budget bombastic things like uh like dr doolittle with rex harrison right. you know trying to maybe follow the success of my fair lady with uh with rex harrison and audrey hepburn um you know, Hello, Dolly! with Barbara Streisand is a huge flop. Wasn't um,
1: West Side Story before Sound of Music, though? It must have been also a reason. It was. A, right?
0: It was around the same time. Yeah. It was. You know, maybe maybe a couple of years earlier. Um, and that was that was uh, I think United Artists uh, slash MGM. Uh, so, you know, but, but those are that's kind of like this blip where the uh, the rush to kind of cash in on that. Uh, just uh drains the studios dry with one flop after another um there's another one with julie andrews called star which uh, is worth seeing because it's completely bombastic and over the top it's based on the life of gertrude lawrence who was a star of mostly stage a little screen but mostly a, a broadway and london uh, theatrical star who was best friends with noel coward and was probably most famous for her association with him um you know it's got these fabulous uh musical numbers but it's very late 60s and and uh very wanting in terms of of story and, and character when it when it should be and really uh engaging and of course it's over long and then the film uh kind of flopped when it came out and they kept tinkering with it cutting stuff out and and shrinking it down and and uh you know it, i think it survives i think it resur- resurfaced uh in its uh, longer form, but which doesn't really help. All, all of these films were, you know, they were incredibly long and they would kind of whittle them down over time from their from their uh, roadshow
1: engagement versions and cut out numbers and Paint Your Wagon was another example. Of oh, the, yes. That one I have seen mostly because I went through my, I went through a, it's, it's, I, I, I was into like, you know, tough guys and I knew Lee Marvin was in it. Uh, yes. And, and he sings And Clint Eastwood. It. And Clint Eastwood, yeah. And so I was like, oh, I got to see that movie. And then uh, uh, and as a kid, I was not that into musicals. And I just couldn't believe it when they <laughs> were both singing.
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a big hit on the stage. And then they decided to put uh, Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. Now, Clint Eastwood actually had sung before. The, he actually recorded a, an album of cowboy songs. when he was a star on, uh, on Rawhide, the TV show that he was doing before he went to Italy to work with Sergio Leone. Um, so this is after the Sergio Leone period. Um, and, uh, you know, this kind of weird story of these two prospectors fighting over, uh, their mail order bride, (laughs) Gene Seberg. It's, it's an odd, odd film. It's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun and it's an oddball kind of film, but it was, uh, certainly a big fly. You know, it was a huge expensive production for Paramount and flopped at the box office. And, you know, it's just one of many nails in the coffin for the movie. You know, because you keep hearing it, this is a movie. You know, the movie musical kept saying it was dead um, because of films like that and yeah. Star and Doctor Doolittle and and uh, you know Hello Dolly and then along comes Grease, right? <laughs> and sort of right. was this sudden and then Grease two puts the nail in the coffin. <laughs> and then, you know, Xanadu and the Xanadu well, <laughs> never <Another well>, flop. <laughs> well, I think Xanadu might have actually been a hit. Um really? I mean yeah I mean critically it was not it was Oh not gosh beloved. no no no, no. <laughs> but uh I've got it on Blu-ray, so what can I say? Um Wow <laughs> I, I, for punch I'm and...
1: impressed. <laughs> it's
0: it's fascinating to watch. I mean mm. the the one to really look out for is the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Right. Yes. Um, film from uh in the late '70s, early '80s, I guess I saw it on my birthday. It was the worst birthday ever. Um, it's 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 a real uh, real turkey. But um, you know, so if somebody will make a good musical, and then out will come a bad one, and put the nail in the coffin of the musical again. And then somebody else will Lars von Trier will make a musical with Bjork, and all of a sudden, musicals are back again. Right, For, right. for a split second, yeah.
1: And, dancer in the
0: Dark. So it's, it's you know, musicals and westerns seem seem to be those two genres that kind of have these resurgences and then disappearances and, and uh, you know, at the moment uh, we're seeing a little spike in both of those, I guess.
1: Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you.
0: Well, I guess that was my kind of uh, spasmodic, off-the-top-of-my-head <laughs> history of the movie musical Well, there. I appreciate and, it. And I, I, I'm i sure I left out a ton of stuff, and there, it was wildly inaccurate. Um, <laughs> but, I,
1: but there was still, I learned a lot from, from your, your ramble there, and I do appreciate that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I was never, I never had a, a passion for any of that stuff, but but it's funny that when I, like I said, I think I just need the right introduction. So so maybe from here on, I, I'll get a chance to, to see more of them and, and absorb them.
0: Yeah, I mean- you know growing up and when i was getting into movies i was never into musicals in a big way um i certainly saw the sound of music as a kid i mean it, it was one of those films that used to come back every christmas it would play at the oxford here in halifax they would bring it back every year because of course this is pre vhs um you know nobody had the luxury of watching a movie in in its entirety you know you could order films on super 8 and, <laughs> and watch them usually without sound you know uh in your bedroom or whatever with a super 8 uh projector but you know in fragments um you know you could buy a weird kind of hybrid cut down version of star wars with a magnetic audio track you know if you had the right kind of projector and watch this Whoa. reader's digest version of star star wars on super 8 film in your bed you know and of course they cost a small fortune um but, you know, if you're a spoiled kid and love Star Wars, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, you know, the, that was the only way you're going to see it, uh, you know, unless you had one of those super early VHS machines or whatever. Um, uh, but uh, you know, it wasn't something I was in love with. And then I, I think my conversion happened with uh, The Bandwagon, uh, directed by Vincent Minnelli and starring uh, Fred Astaire um, and uh, sort of named after a, a Broadway review kind of show, but not borrowing anything from it they basically used the title and scrapped all the songs and got a new story about um uh, fred astaire plays a, a broadway star trying to get back on top with a musical based on the saga of faust wow <laughs> and uh, they even have like an elaborate dance sequence um that's supposed to be like a vision of hell or something like that and and uh and then, at some point, they realize this Faust story is a bunch of pretentious nonsense, and they just put a bunch of fun musical numbers and go out on the road uh with it and and you get things like uh the triplet song you know with the with um Oscar Levant and Nanette Fabre and 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 uh Fred Astaire dressed up like little babies going we do everything alike we look alike
1: <laughs> and, and it's, just it's if hilarious. you could see my face right now i would be like my my furrowed brow and uh i don't even know who any of these people are i'm completely lost it's
0: it's hilarious uh, well Oscar Oscar Levant was a, a gifted pianist in fact i think he might have been the first guy to play Rhapsody in Blue with uh, George Gershwin but he was also a a writer and a raconteur and and he played a lot of uh, comedic characters usually just him being really sarcastic and sardonic Um, he also had a long history of mental illness which uh, took its toll on him later in life but uh, the few times and he's also I think he plays like Gene Kelly's sidekick in American in Paris too if I'm not mistaken Um, really fascinating guy I've got actually one of his books where he writes about music and, and you know People, celebrities he's known, or famous figures, or whatever. Um, but uh, you know, he's a curious figure who managed to sneak into the movies and and have kind of an effect. But the, but the bandwagon was was you know it was so visually impressive, and the musical numbers were inventive, like the one with, where they're dressed up like babies, and and the, the whole Faust dance scene through hell and everything like that. And and I really appreciated Astair's you know physical exertion in this film. And he, he was, he was not a spring chicken by the time he made this film. I oh. think it was the early fifties. And uh, he, I think he maybe even had already announced one retirement at least. Wow. Um, and, uh, at that point and, uh, and yet here he is pulling out all the stops and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, and it also has this great Mickey Spillane inspired, like, detective mystery dance number with Sid Charisse and it's amazing okay it's a it's a big centerpiece and it, it kind of it's the bandwagon's kind of the uh, the flip side uh, I guess of uh, singing in the rain like they're kind of like the two films that came out around the same time and singing in the rain gets all the attention but uh, I actually prefer the bandwagon and uh, and that that detective I, w- I wish I could remember the maybe it's maybe it is slaughter on 10th Avenue I can't remember but the the, 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 the detective I uh, musical sequence is is fantastic okay. and, and with the uh, stare kind of doing all this hard-boiled dialogue and you know all this kind of angular dancing from centuries and all this stuff um it's it's really worth seeing and um and i saw that on like the great money movie i saw it on tv and um you know I, i'm not sure what caused me to to sit through it but uh, you know by the end of it i was like oh i need to see more of these this is fantastic just because it's it was able to blend like this kind of we're putting on a show storyline with the, these fairly elaborate and occasionally surreal um, musical numbers, and uh, just the, the the sheer visual poetry of it uh, really entranced me. Um, you know, and then I started sort of digging back, and then you know, I I saw Singing in the Rain probably around the same time, and it, it's got a lot of the same flavor. It's it's got a and it's got a ton of humor as well. You know, young Debbie Reynolds uh, just this bursting ball of energy, uh, throughout the film and Donald O'Connor, uh, doing these kind of comedic acrobatic, uh, dance routines, uh, offset by, you know, the grace and majesty that is Gene Kelly. So, uh, so that kind of, and those are like kind of the two high watermarks. And I started seeking out the mu- other musicals and some of them didn't appeal to me so much. Like the, I, I didn't really fall for the Rogers and Hammerstein musicals cause there's not so much dancing in those. It's more like you know, storytelling through song sort of thing. I mean that's what Oak why Oklahoma's famous, because it was one of the first musicals to really kind of do that, um and and really integrate story and song to such a degree. I think Showboat probably did it a little bit before that, but um but uh I and and then I discovered the older ones, like like Forty Second Street, which uh featured musical numbers designed for the screen by the great Busby Berkeley, um, who uh Who, you know, played a big role in that film being such a success because of the way, you know, they were staging these scenes with all these chorus girls that were kaleidoscopic and, and, and designed for the camera. It wasn't just like a bunch of Corines doing a high kick across the stage, which, you know, like, like, which is what you would see in these older musicals from the dawn of sound, you know, and which was visually really boring. And especially when, if the camera was like back at the balcony length, but, but, uh you know, Berkeley made the camera move through their legs and would film them from overhead and really made it cinematic. And that's, that's what, uh, completely changed the musical and made it a viable form, uh, cinematically. Um, and in fact, one of his, one of his films, I I just kind of have a sketchy list of, of favorite musicals, but one of my ones that's on there, is uh, one of the few ones that he actually did in Technicolor and it wasn't even for Warner Brothers which is the studio he was normally at it was uh, a Fox musical called The Gangs All Here which uh, is more of a kind of World War II era musical that uh, to be honest I can't even remember what the plot is there's something about a big charity performance in a at some mansion and edward everett horton is running around being fairly fey and and wimpy and 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 you know being his usual comedic self and then you get um carmen miranda uh singing brazil with the the big you know the fruit bouquet on her head um and and you know in this vivid technicolor with this swooping camera and again you know the kind of the stage that is impossibly large for the space that it's in um and and there are these surreal, dreamlike numbers with like neon lights and 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 you know chorus girls sort of appearing almost like from outer space on this futuristic-looking set and floating heads everywhere. It's 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 definitely like LSD before there was LSD <laughs> in, in musical form. Um, and uh, that you know that that's a film that uh, I think I saw early on and kind of forgot about. And then when I actually revisited it in a high definition copy with the proper color and everything it was just like m- kind of mind-blowing um unfortunately it's not you know it's not on the level of the bandwagon or singing in the rain due to the fairly weak story and characters but the musical numbers are so uh well staged and 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 so gonzo that uh you know, that, that it deserves to uh, to be sought out. I don't that's know. That's The Gang's All Here? The Gang's All Here. Okay. It's called a you know, fairly generic title. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a Fox musical, so it's not quite uh, the same in terms of its budget or even its songs as, like, the MGM musicals. And, you know, its main female star is Alice Faye, who was a huge star at Fox and is fairly forgotten, except among the most ardent film buffs these days. And, uh, you know, she was charming, but she didn't, you know, she didn't have the appeal of a Judy Garland, you right. know. Right. Or, or, you know, or Rita Hayworth or, or, you know, anyone like that or Sid Churice or, um, you know, she was sort of affable and talented but didn't have the kind of personality that jumped at you out the screen, I guess. Right. Um, but, uh, so so it's kind of an oddball thing and Carmen Miranda is just a freak of nature. <laughs> uh, you know, she, and she's in a ton of films in the 40s and, you know, doing the same shtick every time. Right, was, right. You know, the the woman from, uh, from uh, Brazil or Argentina or wherever that, uh, you know, can't speak English and it's uh you know trying to uh get used to the ways of American men and all this kind of stuff and um uh, you know it was a good shtick while it lasted I guess but uh, uh you know certainly iconic anyway um she got a lot of mileage out of it but uh you know enjoying all those films kind of led me to kind of the more experimental things like Umbrellas of Cherbourg and um you know, some of those flop musicals, which, you know, again, not great films, uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of fascinating watching Hollywood kind of go
1: down the drain in such a dramatic fashion. <laughs> and I, splashing a lot of money on the stage. Oh, yeah. On the
0: screen doing it. Yeah, I rewatched Dr. Doodle not too long ago because um, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid and I had vague memories of like the push me pull ya, like the llama head at both ends and the giant snail and all this kind of stuff. And it's, and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty appalling. Oh. It's, it's, I mean, it's got a couple of, you know, I talked to the animals. It's got some memorable songs, uh, that Rex Harrison kind of chants his way through because the man could not sing, but, you know, he could, you know, orate, I yes, guess, a yes. song.
1: My Fair Lady. Uh,
0: I, and I do love My Fair Lady, yeah, um, an awful lot. And, and here he sort of does the same kind of shtick, but, uh, the story is so weak, uh, as not to be believed. And, um, and it's, you know, Antony Newley is there and he's fairly annoying. <laughs> it's, even though he's kind of a major musical figure, uh, certainly British anyway, of, of the 1960s, hmm. you know. But uh, he's a little hard to take these days. Uh, but it's so much wasted time on the screen. And it just takes forever for the story to go anywhere. Um, and, it's, uh, and which is generally the case with most of those big, splashy musicals that flopped. Um,
1: yeah, I, I have not seen a lot of those. And, and my... My introduction to musicals, I have, I have seen a few. I just – I don't think that they grabbed me quite the way they did you. I, my, and, and again, they were they were later. The, the Cabaret, I probably saw pretty young. And I remember Liza Minnelli seeming pretty amazing to me. And she is pretty amazing, that film. That's quite a wonderful film. Uh, but I did not get it. You know, I was too young to sure. really appreciate it. I remember enjoying Saturday Night Fever, which is, again, I think on the edge of that musical and music – movie with music – uh, genre kind of it's on the cusp there yeah. uh, because because it was changing and, and it, it uh, the genre was changing in some ways um, but uh, I remember really liking that largely because it was so sweary and I knew <laughs> yes. that I was I mean it's a really an R rated movie and Travolta's character is is just uh, appalling. I mean he's so obnoxious. Um but yes, I I Greece I enjoyed mostly because I think the theme of Greece is basically like you will get ahead if you uh if you dress up and, and show <laughs> off what you've got. <laughs> I mean really that's that's the the if there's a moral to the story, uh, that's it. Yes.
0: Conform. Conform
1: <laughs> you know. wear, leather, wear leather. Be sexy conform. and and you will get everything you want. Uh But, you know, the 80s were where I really felt like I really enjoyed a lot of these movies that had a lot of music in them. And again, fame, I think, for instance, Alan Parker's fame from 1980 is – a musical, like I think there, there are genuine musical numbers that sort of split up the drama in that film. It's a deeply melancholy movie. A lot of people, the characters in the movie, basically, if you haven't seen it, a group of students in the New York School of Performing Arts. There was a television spinoff that I remember watching for for uh, some time, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's a lot of the characters don't have their dreams come true, and it's really sad, actually. But it's a, it's, there's a lot of great music in that, and that, that feels to me like a genuine musical. Flashdance, which I also saw, and I was of the age where I, I saw it many times, um, probably not a musical, but music plays a, a, a definite role in in the story. Uh, same with Footloose. Footloose. I was gonna say, you can't mention yeah, Flashdance without mentioning Footloose. That's right, it's like Fame, Flashdance, Footloose. It's the, the three the triple F's, F's. The triple F's of the early 80s. Uh, and then, of course, Dirty Dancing, which uh, coincidentally, will have its, uh, 30th uh, mm. anniversary, uh, coming up, uh, they're actually re-releasing in cinemas at the end of January. So anyone listening to this before the end of January, keep your, uh your ears open. I'm not sure when necessarily this will be on the airs and out there, but uh, but keep your eyes and ear open if you're a Dirty Dancing fan. It should be in cinemas soon, if not now. Uh, and Dirty Dancing was one I actually caught up with later. I didn't watch it at the time, uh, but I, <laughs> I you had... You weren't it, a teenage girl. That's right. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine uh, basically insisted that I sit down and watch it with her, because she was a favorite, a favorite of hers. And then, in return, she agreed that she would sit down and watch Star Wars, which he had never seen. <laughs> uh, I think that was a fair trade. Seems like off. a fair trade. Yeah. I think because I actually found the Dirty Dancing was a it's a great little movie. It's a tight. You know, the script is good. It's sharp. It deals with a lot of different stuff. It's a, it's a dramatic film. I don't know that I quite still understand what nobody puts baby in the corner means, but I, <laughs> I get that it's a rallying cry for some people, and I understand why they love the film. It's got a lot to recommend it. Uh, I think my favorite film of that particular area was probably The Blues Brothers, uh, and it it is a musical, I think. It has genuine musical uh, sections, and it has some terrific... Musicians showing up in it as as a a, a little white kid, uh, there were that basically introduced me to James Brown, to Ray Charles, to Cab Calloway, John Lee Hooker, and Aretha Franklin. None of whom I think I would have known if it wasn't for the Blues Brothers. And I know the film got a lot of grief at the time from critics, basically like, who are these comedians thinking that they can you know hobnob with these. These legendary musicians, but but uh, I absolutely loved the film and I loved all the music and I listened to the soundtrack till you know I wore the grooves out in the record. So so I feel like it was a gateway for a lot of people to that music. Uh, it was for me certainly, uh, and you know the 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 Blues Brothers band, even the, those guys are legendary. Steve Cropper, Donald Duck, Dunn, Willie Hall, all of whom were in Booker T and the MGs, and uh, a, a lot of other great. Great musicians, too. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really liked it. And of course, you know, you can't mention the Blues Brothers without uh, giving a shout out to Carrie Fisher. Um, who we've talked about a little bit, uh, I believe. Did we mention that she? Uh, no, we, we did Paz? not. Are we, uh, we? Were away? I was away. Right. So I, that it was something we haven't had really a chance to talk about. But uh, I'm glad glad that we do because uh, you know she's greatly missed and uh, and I, I think she was important figure to both of us uh, when we were kids and certainly in the years since.
0: Yeah, and I don't think uh, I don't think a lot of her non Leia work has been justifiably. Uh, uh recognized and and certainly her her i mean I granted it's not the hugest role in the blues brothers but she's she gives it everything she's got <laughs> yeah
1: she's awesome as the mystery woman that's how she's uh yes. credited
0: and the, the you know the, the, what else is there she was in the i don't know if you uh, remember a film called under the rainbow <laughs>
1: no I haven't seen that <laughs> where before.
0: she and Chevy Chase were paired up as uh, uh they're put in charge of uh, wrangling the uh the let's see, the short people, the little people uh cast members of The Wizard of Oz. Okay. So it's actually like a drama set around the making of The Wizard of Oz. And as far as I know, it's the only fictional film that was made about the making of The Wizard of Oz. It kind of, it seems like a topic that would make for a great film. But in this
1: case, uh it was not a great film, but I, I still kind of want to revisit that. Yeah, one. I do too. And that totally hooks into our subject matter because of course, Wizard of Oz, a great uh, musical of the... uh of the past, uh, that's that's really interesting. I, I've never even heard of Under the Rainbow.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, I check it out. Late seventies, early yeah, I think seventies or early eighties, and you know, it was, mm-hmm. uh, one of Chevy Chase's earliest films after Foul Play. Right. You know, when yeah. he made he had a big hit with Foul Play, and then made a bunch of turkeys right. almost immediately after that. <laughs> you know, and finally Fletch kind of rejuvenated his what you know that and, and National Lampoon uh, vacation, vacation. I think yeah. sort of gave him some life support for
1: his his up-and-down film career. Now, there have been a a few really cool musicals lately. Um, And before I get to those, I want to quickly give a shout-out to a movie that I've mentioned, actually. I've mentioned it twice on two previous uh, previous uh, podcasts uh, lends me your ears podcast so I won't go into it much except just to a nod to it when we're talking about musicals We I mentioned it on the New York movies and mm. on the Woody Allen movies and that is Everyone Says I Love You right. anyone listening to this who was a big fan of La La Land go see Everyone Says I Love You because it's absolutely delightful it has a lot of the same qualities as La La Land except I think I think it's better. Um, if you, of course, have a problem with Woody Allen, then maybe not. but uh, but otherwise, I think it's a delightful musical and it really has all the magic. That uh, that I think great musicals should have, and and uh, and it's it's maybe my favorite. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Topsy Turvy from 1999, written and directed by Mike Lee, about Gilbert and Sullivan and their efforts to create the Mikado. And I was not I knew nothing about Gilbert and Sullivan before I saw this film, but I found it fascinating. The exploration of their creative energies, how they work together, um, and life in the sort of upper class uh, London in, in this Victorian times in the midst of this culture of, of – uh, all these people putting, getting together to put on one of these musicals, uh, really fascinating film. And, uh, yeah, I, I really, Jim Broadbent and Alan Corduner are the, uh, are the two leads and a great cast, uh, Timothy Spall and a great cast of, of actors mm. playing actors and, and, uh, singers. Uh, and it is, it's a really, really lovely film.
0: I do love Topsy Turvy. I, I grew up, uh, spinning, my mom had a, had a doily cart sings uh you know greatest hits of Gilbert and Sullivan LP that I spun over and over again like I you know I I knew three little maids from school and <laughs> right I, and the very model of a modern major general like I knew these tunes when wow. I you know, by the time I was like eight or nine I could sing along to them and I still have the album actually uh I made a digital copy <laughs> and I have it on my iPod um and uh You know, but I didn't really know, I I never really seen a full production. I knew that the songs were kind of funny, but I didn't know like the whole story of of some of the satire that was going into these Gilbert and Sullivan productions, how far ahead of their time they were Uh um, in terms of uh, social commentary um, and the stuff that they kind of got away with um, or what the nature of that partnership was like, uh, you know, the fact that... uh, Uh, they wish they were making more, maybe more serious music rather than these silly operettas, but the silly operettas are what paid the bills. So, so they, uh, you know, they get kind of more elaborate, more strange as, as they go on. And, and of course the, the attention to period detail is amazing there, just like it is with some of uh, Mike Lee's other historic films, his film about, um, Oh, uh, the painter Turner, Mr. Turner, Mr. Turner, um, yeah, yeah. You know, with another? Timothy Spall again. Another yeah. fabulous film and a great yeah. Spall performance. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wish, I wish that there was another. I can't think of a film actually made of a Gilbert and Sullivan musical. Maybe, maybe that style is just a little too dated for for movie audiences at this point. I remember there was a great version of the Pirates of Penzance that came out. I think with uh, Kevin Klein, maybe. In okay, it. okay. Um, basically, it was like a theater, you know, a movie version of a version that had been playing in new york city took some great uh, success in the 1980s uh and there's a fabulous version of the mikado actually now you mentioned it that was done in england uh in the late 30s i think in an early technicolor process and it looks amazing the colors are, are
1: beautiful so that's worth uh seeking out for sure um I just want to say before we wrap up, cause I know we're getting close to that. Uh, uh, the three titles that came out in 2016, that all could be considered musicals. Uh, one, the first one is again, that, uh, music in a movie that might not be considered traditional musical, but I certainly would count it, and that's Sing Street, John Carney's film, uh, John Carney Famous for Once, another movie with a lot of great music in it. Um, and it's about sort of an autobiographical story about growing up at this, this school in, um, in Dublin in the 80s, and this kid who meets a girl who says she's a model, and he immediately invites her to be in his video, uh, for his band, and then he has to go and form the band because he doesn't have a band, and uh, and so he writes a bunch of songs, and it's really about the passion and love for '80s music, but it's really not it's not restricted to just that. It's it's about it's about uh, teen. Uh, you know foibles and uh, and problems and solutions. Uh, I absolutely love this film and uh, and I really I really recommend anyone check it out. It's actually on Netflix right now. Um, another film that uh, was a musical in 2016 was London Road, directed by Rufus Norris and written by Alecky Blythe, and it's based on a. On, a, on an actual stage musical, where Alecky Blythe interviewed people living in Ipswich, a town in eastern England, in 2006, just as a serial killer was murdering prostitutes who frequented the area, she took those interviews and, with composer Al- Adam Cork, she turned the material into a musical on stage. So this is the film version of that, and uh, it stars recognizable British thespians like uh, Olivia Colman, mm. Anita Dobson, and even a brief appearance by Tom Hardy, who sings, um, <laughs> not for long, but he definitely does. It's a really astonishing amalgam of genres, Uh, you know, in the look of uh, the impact of crime on a small community, uh, turning all those actual interviews, every um and uh, and occasional giggle into – Actual song, um, general, and this is a speak, bringing it back to that word front that I learned <laughs> while researching this. Um, recitative, it's definitely <laughs> recitative, um, and uh, it's a strange source of inspiration. But I really like a disturbing subject for a musical. But I thought it worked really well, and it's also fairly ambiguous. You know, the you, you wonder whether the residents are are there, there's a chance there that I mean they aren't all likable in their reaction to what's going on here, and. Um, and it's interesting, the the sort of line that it walks uh, in in the, in the story it tells. Um, so yeah, so there's another one. And the last one I wanted to mention, I know this is one you've seen, uh, Stephen's Hail Caesar, which is <laughs> uh, the Coen brothers celebrating their love for Hollywood's golden age with a, a knowing comedy. It's sort of in the spirit of the Hudsucker Proxy or Barton Fink or even Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which of course is another great music movie. With Certainly music. a lot of music in that one. Yeah, yeah. That would, I would say of all their movies, that could be a musical that might be it, but this one as well it has genuine musical sections in it, mm-hmm. uh, and it 's very funny and uh, and lively in a way that uh, that i really I really liked um, and you know there 's some heavy themes, some musings of ideology versus faith, uh, and the temptation to worship the dream factory versus its inherent frivolity, that kind of thing but uh, it is it 's great fun, and I love the music, and I love the um, uh, yeah, I love uh, "No Dames" and you know <laughs> songs like that. Uh, uh, really, really great stuff. If you're a fan a fan of Channing Tatum, don't miss it.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, those musical numbers are, are certainly a big highlight. I know when the first time I saw the trailer for it, I was just like, "Oh, this is going to be something." You, you've got the the nod to those Busby Berkeley musicals, then you've got um, uh, Scarlett Johansson and kind of an Esther Williams. We, we, the whole concept of Esther Williams, the, like, oh, she can swim. Let's put her in a bunch of movies yeah, where she swims a lot. It's
1: so strange.
0: And she made a lot of films and each they all involve like these swimming musical numbers. And and then uh, Fox was like, well, we'll show you. And then they got Sonia Henney, who was like an Olympic skater and made a whole slew of films with musical numbers based on, you know, kind of like this Ice Capades thing of Sonia Henney on, on uh, skating around to musical numbers. Um, so, you know, this you know the... the uh, they're pretty ripe targets yeah, <laughs> for satire in the classic Hollywood film. Uh, the, the, uh, it, uh, you know, not that Oscars are any measure of a film success. It, it did get, uh, fairly snubbed. Yeah, I think yeah, it, I think it did. Nomination. And
1: that's, that's too bad. Uh, because I think it could, could quite, uh, have, have gotten some, some love. Uh, there's a few, a few acting possibilities. Ray Fiennes, I thought was terrific. Oh, in the scenes. yeah. <laughs> I, I kind
0: of thought that maybe he'd get a supporting nod at least, but, uh, but it's definitely one I, I can't wait to revisit. Well, that's been our look at movie musicals, past and present, and uh, our return from a bit of a holiday hiatus. It's great to be back in the saddle again as uh, Roy Rogers once sang to Trigger. And, uh, Did he really <laughs> sing it to Trigger? Uh, sure. <laughs> Who else would he sing it to? <laughs> Trigger, had, Trigger had to wear the damn saddle. <laughs> um... <laughs> Oddly enough, the one thing we didn't talk about was, uh, the one thing that kept the musical alive all these years is the animated feature film, usually Disney, but also from some of the other studios. Right, sure, you're but right. But if it, it hadn't been for Disney, then, you know, the, the form probably would be dead.
1: Yeah, uh, I would, after all these shows, and I, right? if we were including animated uh, musicals, which maybe need, we may need a whole other That's probably a whole other show, yeah. But I would say The Jungle Book would, oh, be, would be mine. First yeah. movie I ever saw. There you go.
0: Um... Uh, so there, there's an idea for another episode. But, uh, you know, and if you have any ideas, you can drop us a line uh, via our Facebook page. Uh, we're on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears, And uh, we also have a Gmail uh, email account if you want to drop us a line at Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I am personally on Twitter at NS underscore SCOOKE.
1: I'm also uh, found on Twitter uh, at flaw in the iris and that's my blog and of course if you enjoy what we do you can
0: always throw us a few coins via our patreon uh, which should be relatively easy to find online Uh, and uh, as always we'd like to thank uh, the folks here at ckdu for the use of their recording facilities and our benefactors at the village soundcast network
1: this was a village soundcast network original production